0: Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limoodcast. I'm Tamar Libicki. In today's episode, we listen back to an interview done for the 2018 Limood Seattle. Here's our interviewer, Carl
1: Schutoff.
2: This is Carl Schutoff for Limood Seattle. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak with klezmer musician Joshua Horowitz. Josh is also a composer teacher and founding member of the Ensemble Budowitz and co-founder of Varetsky Pass. So, Josh, could you tell us how you, how you came to be interested in uh, klezmer music? You've, you've obviously done a lot of uh, different types of music. Klezmer, especially the, the type of klezmer you're doing with Budowitz and Vretzky Pass, uh, this is fascinating stuff. How, how, did you, how did you get there? How did you uh, come to, to be interested?
0: Um, it actually happened, you know, I was living in Austria from 1984 to 2001 for 17 years. And when I was over there, um, during the, I don't know if you remember the Waldheim years. Um, I do,
2: I do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So when that started happening, I was in the late 80s. Um, it was just when I was finishing my studies at the um, the Graz Academy of Music in southern Austria. And, um, you know, in, in music composition, theory and composition, where I ended up teaching, too. And um, so I was, at that time, I was involved in avant-garde composers group, Called the andere Seite, the the other string or the other side.
2: The other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
0: um, so that's what I was doing then. <laughs> when I saw this rash of antisemitism that kind of came out in Austria during those years, I thought, well, gee, you know, I I this is like this is my people. I I, I thought I should, um, you know, find out what the what the music was about, and because there wasn't very much Jewish music happening in Austria at that time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is you know m- late eighties. And um, and so a, a friend of mine, Aron Saltiel, gave me some tapes of. At that time, there, were, there was very little information out there. There was um, one reissue by Marty, Martin Schwartz yes. right here in mm-hmm. Berkeley of you know historical recordings, and and the, the I think the klez, the uh, alt, um, what's it called the complete Klezmer by Henry Sapoznik. That book was mm-hmm. out, but there was very little in Austria. There were a couple of groups that were mostly non-Jewish doing. Some Jewish music, and I thought, gee, i you know I should go look and try to find what this music is about I, I fell in love with the music that Aaron showed me um on these cassette tapes, and so I thought gee there's none none of this is around so I started scouring archives and going to Eastern europe um took all altogether i think about fifteen different countries into my um you know under my umbrella for for looking for places um poland hungary um czech republic you know just um ukraine just going all around trying to find um the music and 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 also hanging out sometimes with gypsies in eastern europe because i i learned that gypsies were and jews were the main carriers of folk music um through through the you know 18th 19th 20th century so um so that's where I started. Was was trying to search out people who knew the music, um, taking various trips and and just sticking my microphone in front of their face <laughs> and having yeah. them, um, you know, sing or play. Um, yeah, and so I, I felt at that time there was I was kind of on a mission. I mean, it was like, oh, I'm going to reinstate the music in the place where it was mm-hmm. destroyed. Um, And I don't have that anymore. Uh, That's just, that's so, so it's been years since I've had that feeling of doing that. But it always kind of stuck in my craw a little bit that that the repertoire that developed um, early on, the standard repertoire, was only like 30 or 40 tunes that everybody was playing. And I thought, it's got to be bigger than this.
2: Okay, okay. No, that's that's fascinating. I, uh, a very quick anecdote on my end. Uh, I, uh, I was sitting down with a client, uh, my band Kesselgarten, we, we were going to play a bar mitzvah for them. And the guy said to me, and he was kind of a cynical guy, he said, do you only play klezmer music? Uh, and, and I was tempted to say that would be like asking a classical musician if they only play classical music. Uh, and I very respectfully uh, responded to him that klezmer music is is much more complicated, much more vast. The repertoire is far more expansive than, than most people realize. And that kind of takes me to my next question. Uh, so having done this research and having gone to the source, uh, as you did, um, how did you get to the Carpathian bow with Veretsky Pass? How did you get to the uh, to the pre immigration stuff with uh, with Budowitz, for example?
0: First of all, I have to tell you, I was often not successful uh-huh. in a lot of those trips. This was before internet was happening, and you had sometimes telephone numbers, and you'd go. You'd go to the local market in whatever town you were in and you'd ask the people who sold eggs and milk, you know, the ladies who knew the gossip of the mar- you know, the local <laughs> place, you know, where were the weddings happening and uh-huh. where are the musicians and stuff like So it was like a real wild goose chase at that time. I just, you know, was floundering through. But I did get little snippets of things and I found stuff in archives. Um, so... So listening to the older recordings was so interesting to me. I loved the style of them, mm-hmm. and I and and when you compared it to you know what the Clismorum and Capella were doing at that time, it didn't sound anything like them.
1: Right? <laughs> it okay. just
0: didn't. They just didn't have it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And and I think wh- why not? I oh one of the reasons is that the instrumentation is wrong. <laughs> didn't have thing, the same instrumentation changed. They didn't have a banjo then in, in
1: uh-huh. I mean, they they
0: had it, but you know. Um, it's just the, the common instruments were the cymbal and, and strings and sometimes accordions and, you know, older acoustic instruments. And, and so I realized that the sound was different partly because of that and then partly because there was way more of an Ottoman influence I see. in music then. Um, you know, you just heard the little nuances, the things that people don't hear right away, mm-hmm. the way that they phrase a melody. Like they don't when they when they play da 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 dum they don't play a da 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 di da dum they play a da 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 dum you know there's there's more going on there on a micro level and I was hearing that and and trying to imitate it and so a lot of it was just so with Budavitz, um I mean my main question when I was going out into the fields was always I was starting out. How was what did the wedding sound like? Uh-huh. You know, just like what does and, and part- in particular, what did it sound like when the musicians played to the bride, or when there was like the the bajonas? You know, when the singing to the bride, and that was that's been dead for so long. Basically, um, that part of the ritual. But I realized that it was kind of the oldest strata of what you heard in cousin music, and that was what I was interested in. And so, you know, with the second project of Budowitz it was really dedicated to trying to piece together one type of wedding that existed, like just the chronology of it, like what happened first and what, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. So that would be that would be the wedding without a bride CD. Yeah, that essentially. was mm-hmm. at that
0: time for me the most important project because it took kind of years to put together. Um, I mean, I started researching that stuff in the late '80s, but it didn't. That was like the result of it when we got to that point.
1: Uh-huh. No, no, and,
0: and it was, and I realized that after talking to lots of different old people about weddings, that everyone had a different take on it, and and I thought that that's one of the key things here is that. Um, there's no one way,
2: <laughs> right? Right. There's
0: no one chronology. There was no one set of tunes. You know, whatever. But those are important questions to me then. Yeah.
2: And, yeah. Well, you know, reading the, uh, the the liner notes for your first CD, Mother Tongue, and then for uh, Wedding Without a Bride, the, the liner notes there is is like reading a treatise on on the, the origins and the development and and the, and and the. Uh, the way klezmer music was played in the late 19th century and, and, and early 20th centuries is wonderful. And I'll tell you wonderful. why I did it that way. Go ahead, go ahead.
0: Because, because um, I was struggling then. I was working in the university at that time, actually, as a, as a, uh, re- a research fellow, and it was really hard to find people who would publish this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was just having trouble, and I thought, well, screw them. <laughs> a, 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 um, a, an ethnomusicological... Uh, publication will reach only academics, period, full stop. But a CD will reach a lot more people, and among them academics. So I thought this is the widest distribution I could hope for is a CD booklet uh-huh. at that time. And that's why I put so much effort into those. That The CD booklet for Wedding Without a Bride took six months just to write. I mean, just to really hone it. And, you know, and I, th- I really thought of it as, as, a, as a musicological work, but it just happened to be in the wrong context. <laughs> but I didn't mind. That was, you know, more people probably read that than if it had been in the you know um, Journal of Ethnomusicology. Right. Which, by the way, I'd written like a 63-page monograph on the modes of Klezmer that M- Mark Slobin, who's a good friend, mm-hmm. never took to publishing. I couldn't get it out I just couldn't get the stuff out there. So that's why I posted it for free online and I and I kind of gave up on publishing the
2: thing. Well, it's uh, I can tell you that, you know uh, speaking for myself and 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 other musicians that I that I know uh, we we read those uh, <laughs> we read those liner notes and and
0: You and, and your grandmother, <laughs> but that's about it. They
2: <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're incre- no, Seriously, they're incredibly informative and and, uh, and
1: and
0: sometimes wrong. I mean, but um you know there's there's wrong information which i'd love to correct but but, yeah, thanks for that. I oh. see, you see
1: it reached
2: somebody. <laughs> well, uh, if there are mistakes, first of all, they're lost on me, uh, but uh, uh, let that be the impetus for another Budowitz CD where you can write another 60-page uh, <laughs> liner notes with corrections to the previous one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be the first one to to, 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 to buy it. I promise <laughs> <Okay>. you that. <laughs> um, okay, so you had mentioned that... Um, you talked about instrumentation and the sound uh, that you were trying to, uh, to to replicate. So, is that is that where the button accordion comes in?
0: Uh, yeah, it came in because I I played a festival in Southern Austria where um, you know and I had been listening to the the earliest recordings of of uh, accordion, like Yankovitz mm-hmm. and and well, some you should get taken he had a piano accordion, but. But um, nobody knew what what the earliest accordions were. I mean, what what kind of accordions? We don't have pictures of those. We knew that um, Matusevich was a, a concertina player, and that's a different thing. Right. But, so I was copying their styles. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I couldn't find an accordion that had that sound. And part of it, I think, is just that they were recorded on 78. <laughs> and, you know, you miss a lot of the, the, sure. the <laughs> so nuances. Been, yeah. But that's all I had to go on. And, and I played this, this, this festival, and there was this other group um, playing Viennese salon music. And the sound of the accordion was just like exactly like uh. the its accordion. I went up to the guy and I said, "What is that accordion?" And he, you know, he explained it to me. And I went on the wild search to find it and and find that type of accordion, just that. And it turns out that the accordion that I used, um, even though it was typical for Viennese salon music, it was actually the predecessor of the Russian bayon,
1: the okay.
0: button accordion that Russians use. Mm-hmm. And that system as well. And it was developed by the guy that made my accordion. So I got this accordion, I found this accordion from 1889. I was thrilled. I was like, wow, this is as old as it gets. (laughs) For an accordion, not for a violin, but for an accordion. I mean, they were, you know, they were developed in the 1830s. But, you know, to find a workable one from the 1880s was pretty remarkable. It's older than the one in the German instrument museum, you know. Uh uh The the Trossingen Accordion Museum. But, um, But, yeah, and so the sound was just so... Beautiful to my ears, and and old sounding, and the reeds were old. They were the original reeds. And wow! There. So I just the sound just rung true to me. Even though now today I listen to it, and I go, no, there were lots of accordions then. It could it, people could have played anything. So I was, but I was really in you know interested in historicity and the whole thing and and at that time uh, there may have been a time when i used the word authentic i wouldn't touch that word anymore no oh, okay <laughs> plur- pluralistic is is much the word i prefer okay gotcha. exactly the opposite almost
1: mm-hmm.
0: no like just like there were lots of cor- accordions a lots of players and and you, you know there was no typical thing and the only thing i can say about it is it's an old instrument and therefore an older sound um and it could could be you know, but it, it it sounded to me like like what I'd heard on the early recordings. And then I found that well, gee, you know, the instrument that you use really influences the way the style that you play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't do things on a piano accordion that I can do on that little button, that accordion, button accordion, and vice versa. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So your
0: choices are going to be different. Yeah. And so I thought, well, in the in in the interest of being unique which is a very, you know, ego-propelled <laughs> motivation. Um,
2: very natural, though. It is. <laughs>
0: For any musician, that's kind of what you want. Um um, I thought, well, I you know, certainly going to be unique with this instrument, and maybe with the sound, and hopefully with the style too.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, there's unique good and there's unique bad. You're you're <laughs> you're, the, you're the former. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, well, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the the Buddha's recording, I think uh, in, in its different iterations, you're you're basically going for that older sound, because you, uh, you're us- you playing on the button accordion. But you your clarinet player is playing Christian, I believe, is playing on the clarinet in C, uh and your string players are playing on um on older instruments as well, is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean um there are some modern instruments in there, but like, you know, um the viola, the three string you know, the viola in in uh Hungarian music, you know, in Kalotashek and Mezusheg music, in in, you know um Transylvanian music, you um take off the last string um, okay. on the viola, and you file down the bridge so you can play all three strings as a chord. So they used to call that judo brach, uh, the Jewish viola.
1: Interesting. Um, nobody okay. knows why. <laughs> uh, you
0: know, because a lot of times the word Jewish means just means weird, <laughs> or opposite, <laughs> or different, and or screwed up, and... Um, and or sometimes it may have some historical basis, but you just don't know anymore because a lot of things are called Jewish. Like you think of the Jews harp, or the, they call the, uh, you know the, they call a hurdy gurdy sometimes a Judenlira, you know, uh. like a Jewish lira. Mm-hmm. And um, so so anyway, and even in the symbol, you know, I play the symbolum too. The cymbal. the you know the
2: the, the hammered dulcimer, Jew, hammer, Jewish hammered dulcimer, hammer, right?
0: And and when the when the strings are reversed. On those, they call it a Stimmung, which is the Jewish tuning. And that, um, um, could mean because it's reversed, like like Hebrew is, re- you know, right to left, that are left to right. Ah,
1: okay. Or it could
0: mean weird, or it could mean that it really was Jewish. And you do find evidence of the elements of those tunings in, in Jewish instruments. Okay, so, that's fascinating. No, you just don't know.
2: Right, Really, right.
0: nobody, you know, you can't really make any foregone conclusions about this stuff. But anyway, so yeah, with the Budapest stuff, we were attempting to try to um, to be... You know, just like we were kind of hooking on to the early music Mm -hmm. ideal. Not quite getting there, but part of that was because there was an economic thing going on there that's like we it was hard to get gigs at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking maybe we can fall into the early music, maybe we can convince the early music thing that 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 folk music should be part of that. Uh Remember this is in the eight you know, eighties and early nineties. Right. And and like um I was living in Graz, where Nicholas Harnikur was basically from and stationed, and I had friends that played in the Consentus Musikus you a know, very well-known early music ensemble. And I think it's all classical music. These guys don't, none of them are doing, you know, folk music, and they should be. And eventually it kind of seeped in there, and we did get into some early music festivals, but that was my intention also. Mm-hmm. So, just to be totally honest about it, it was like, but I really wanted the older sound, and I wanted to, but we we realized we couldn't get past the nineteenth century honestly
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Cause, because um we there's just too little information you know the music folk music is not documented in the same way that music of the upper class is
1: mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. no that's a big deal you know that that you the earliest, you know, documentation that we have of folk music basically starts in the late 19th century, and then we get the recordings, which is, like, amazing.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we can
0: have those as early as, you know, 1896, we have, rec- you know, for we have, you know, cylinder recordings of folk music. And mm-hmm. That's pretty cool, but you can't get earlier than that in really um, knowing how the music sounds. We don't
1: right, have the treatises, right.
0: and we don't have all that stuff.
1: Yeah. So no. there was
0: so much conjecture involved in this, and then and then that marketing kind of, you know, just ho- trying to ho- trying to get us out there, mm-hmm. survive, you know?
2: Well, you know, nonetheless, I, mean, I understand what you're saying about documentation, uh, uh, but one thing I've noticed just in, in you know, uh, my, my own casual observations is that guys like you and and Joel Rubin and Hank Isnetsky, uh you're out there getting PhDs doing tremendous amounts of research and discovering things that uh, uh, people who associated Klesmer with Borscht Belt never even knew existed, never even imagined.
0: Yeah, just by the way, I don't have a PhD. I, my, oh. <laughs> he keeps telling me I have to go get one. I'm too lazy. But yeah, you're right. And And of those people, you know, Joel is really... An amazing researcher, by the way. I just, um, I think, you know, we, we need to look to Joel for most of the answers for stuff. Um, but anyway, so, yeah. Um, but uh, Right, the, and, and all of our, I mean, um, especially mine and Joel's interests have been in earlier stuff, in
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: earlier klezmer. Hank is also, but certainly he's way more in the 20th century than <laughs> Right, were.
2: right, yeah. Oh, I'm just going to throw out a, a quick commercial Advertisement for you, uh, in, in terms of what the the work that you are doing with uh, Joel Rubin, your latest CD, Poilin, uh, is absolutely extraordinary, and uh, anybody who's within the sound of my voice should be. Uh, Listening to it, if not owning it.
0: <laughs> now, oh, thank you so much. But let me tell you. Let me tell you. It's Cookie is the main director of that project.
2: Oh, okay. okay. So
0: I won't take credit for that on any level, <laughs> the playing part of it. But um, but that's been Cookie's baby, and and we've talked about this so many times that that people assume because you know they associate me and Joel with the early stuff, and you know we were doing it. You know we were kind of. Doing the stuff early on, but but um, but the cookie has been the main um, generator for most of what's happening in in Varetsky Pass. Uh The Polish Polish project was her baby, her idea. Most a lot of her research, yeah, and so we just we just you know tagged along on that.
2: Well, just for the for the listeners out there who might not know who Cookie is, uh, we're talking about Cookie Sigelstein. Uh, who is arguably the finest klezmer fiddler in the world today. Uh, And that's my well-informed opinion. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna gonna make a little change here, change direction of the interview. Uh, I I did notice, Josh, in in reading uh, about you uh, um, on your website, various websites, that you have done music therapy. uh, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Um, That's when I lived in Austria, and there was a. It was just getting started. Music therapy, in uh, officially was just getting started, and it was in Graz in a place called the Beratungszentrum, which was the advice center. And what it was was a halfway house between the insane asylum and society. Wow! So it was very deeply um, mentally ill Mm -hmm. people who had just been left out of what the Austrians call the googie hoops slang, which is the, um, um, you know, those cake forms
2: mm-hmm.
0: All the, um, I forget what they're called. They have kind of a spike in the middle for making like pound cake or something.
2: Oh, 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 yeah. Okay. That's
0: what a googie hoop is. Okay. And, and <laughs> for, but anyway, yeah. So I did, um, for several years, I did music therapy there as, and, um, dealt with those, those people. Um,
2: and, and uh, uh, so what would—I'm uh, would, uh, sure there's no such thing as a typical encounter, but in 25 words or less, what would one of those encounters look like?
0: Well, it was a circle of people that would come in, and um, a lot of times it would be very chaotic. It would either be really chaotic because chaos is contagious— mm-hmm. Or it would be really subdued because depression is also contagious, and and so I would come in and immediately would sense what what the the emotion of the group was. Either it was just complete pandemonium; people were, you know, taking out instruments that were in boxes and putting them on the floor, and people and you know just um, so the, so my first task was always synchronizing <laughs> the group if I could do that. Right. Um, cause it was a group setting and, um, a lot of a lot of times it was okay. Like I, I devised very, very simple techniques. Like I would give everybody a tennis ball and just tell them to hold it and then to try to bounce it at the same time,
1: mm-hmm. put a mm-hmm. chair
0: in front of them and bounce it on the chair to make, and then to start to make rhythm on that. And, you know, so I just, I was, I was always concerned with doing what, what music, the function of music Basically is,
2: which is to synchronize human beings. I, I was very curious you know because I've always thought that you know above and beyond you know music above and beyond creating doing something that that is pleasurable, that sounds good, it, it's the ultimate cooperative enterprise it, it, It's the ultimate type of collaboration where people get together and, and try to create something Absolutely. beautiful together and, and, and the feeling that one walks away with you know having achieved any level of success in doing that
0: yeah. It's underestimated as a tool.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, lastly, um, uh, in addition to all the different things that you're doing, playing with Budovitz and playing with Fretzky Pass and teaching and arranging and writing, uh, any other projects that uh, I'm, you'd I'm like to doing talk about?
0: I'm f- more film scores now. I, oh, okay. That's, that's mm-hmm. what I studied originally when I went to Berklee College of Music when I was 18. Um,
2: in uh, Boston?
0: Yeah, I went Uh there for two years Okay, um, and studying film scoring there. And, you know, I studied music um, composition privately there with Hugo Norton, who was at Boston College and (coughs) Boston Conservatory and Boston University, and um, was wonderful, wonderful. I studied privately with him for several years. And so, composition was my main thing then. <clears throat> so I'm going back to that and doing more jazz playing too on piano. Ah, okay. um, that was my main instrument before. <laughs> I'm playing with John Schott. I don't know, you know the. I don't. No, no. And, uh, and we're doing a project with Jake Marmer. This is more, much more experimental. You know, you know, experimental music. Mm-hmm. So it has it, it has some klezmery things in there sometimes, but certainly not. You know, it's it's much more jazz oriented, free yeah. jazz and stuff like that. So that's a side of me I think a lot of people don't know, but because I never pushed it either. Uh-huh. But yeah, I'm doing that with them. It's called Cosmic Diaspora.
2: Will will that uh, will that result in a CD or a performance? It is.
0: Was he just Jake Marm or just the poet of it. It's po you know like kind of like beat poetry. It's okay. Wonderful, wonderful poetry. He just got a grant to, to record it. So sometime next year, there should be a CD.
2: Uh, excellent, excellent. Okay, Josh. Well, listen, it has been a great pleasure talking with you. Uh, th- thank you for spending some time with us.
0: The Seattle Lee Moodcast was edited at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Libicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. A big thank you to Carl Schutoff for conducting the interview. Thanks also to our guest, Joshua Horowitz. Hear him on the new Varetsky Pass album, The Magid Chronicles, slated to be out February 15, 2019.